The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Hi there. It's Francine Lacroix, host of In the City. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. It's Catalina. I'm cleaner. <laughs> well, this area is really nice. I know the rich because look at the houses, you can see the differences, you know. But yeah, to live in Notting Hill Gate area in here, it's a rich, it's a posh area, actually. Do you know how much houses are? Jesus, mother Christ, that could be a lot. Yeah. But it's a lovely place, lovely place. Expensive but lovely. <laughs> yeah. I'm David Merritt, here in the London studio. This is In The City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories at the heart of the City of London. With surging inflation and bad economic news dominating the news agenda, this week we decided to take a look at the extreme wealth that lives in London. There are more billionaires here than New York, Moscow or even Hong Kong. Often that money enters without question. But Britain's National Crime Agency estimates that the UK's dirty money problem runs into the hundreds of billions of pounds annually. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine is forcing the government to rethink its custom of rolling out the red carpet. Good morning. Russia has invaded Ukraine. President Zelensky has accused Russia of nuclear terror. This is a threat to European security and stability. Britain and America have again warned Russia of devastating sanctions if it invades Ukraine. Boris Johnson announced asset freezes on five Russian banks and three high net worth individuals. For our part today, the UK is announcing the largest and most severe package of economic sanctions that Russia has ever seen. This is the first tranche, the first barrage of what we are prepared to do. So just how ingrained is dirty money in London and can it be weeded out? Francine is away this week, so I asked Bloomberg senior writer Stephanie Baker to join me in the studio along with Caroline Knowles, Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London, and author of Serious Money, Walking Plutocratic London. In her book, Professor Knowles gives an account of her walks through the streets of London's gilded districts, from right here in the city to Notting Hill, Chelsea, and Richmond, as she tries to understand the lives of the super-rich and how they continue to shape our city. And to do our own research, we sent one of our producers to retrace some of her steps. 
I, I love this idea of walking around these districts of London as well, and you get a real sense from the pavement of the yawning gaps now between the haves and haves not in London, a lot of it driven by the wealth that's created within a square mile of where we're sitting right now. That yawning gap, according to your book, seems to be getting worse. Is that right? Yes, I think so. I mean, if you look at what happened after the banking crisis and after COVID, those who already have a great deal of money became a lot richer and those who didn't visibly became poorer. And you see an expansion and you see it around here of homeless populations sitting around the streets. And, you know, the number of, of unhoused people in London just goes on rising. I think it's currently around 10 or 11,000. And, and that seemed that, that London was getting both richer and poorer at the same time. And I was interested in what were the sort of mechanisms of consolidation of the plutocracy in the city? And how could one begin to think about that? What were the infrastructures that made London a, a wealthy city that's also poor, that meant these two things could coexist? And the, the pandemic uh, has made things worse, am I right? It certainly has. I mean, it's increased the wealth of the wealthiest. Um, but for, for those who are, you know, on moderate incomes, um, the, the median income in London is, is still only just about £34,000 a year. For those people, life became tougher and tougher. And for those who struggled to find housing, um, which seems to, you know, to be one of London's most um, pressing social problems, if you like, that well, while we build plenty of houses, that they're unaffordable to most of the population that what you have is this widening gap between haves and have-nots, really. So that London, it seems to me, is becoming an experiment in the, you know, the, the coexistence of wealth and want. And Stephanie, I can bring you in here as well. You've written for many years at Bloomberg about money trails around London. What's changed in recent years in terms of how wealth is created in the city and then how it's spent more broadly? Yeah, well, I arrived in London in 1999, and it has changed so much since then, from the rise of Canary Wharf to the transformation of Hackney in East London that was once the affordable place to live and is now super trendy and super expensive. And then you go to places like Belgravia or Mayfair, which have just gotten richer and richer and in some cases feel a little bit hollowed out, I would say, because so many foreigners have bought property in those neighborhoods and they don't live there all the time. People which coming, it's more looks like businessmen who look the house only for investment, keeping empty for the long time and then selling to another people. So there's no community, right? It's the dark, the dark windows at night, isn't it, around Mayfair? Exactly. Yeah. So I've lived in London all my life and like, there's been a massive influx of, of money, foreign money. Most of the people who own these houses don't actually live here anyway, so you wouldn't ever really see them. Yeah. Right, it sucks the life, doesn't it? The street life is sucked out of those very wealthy areas. I think Notting Hill is probably a very good example, yeah. where go back 20, 30 years and you had black activists, you had um, community activists around housing, you had a much more colourful, vibrant landscape. And now, if you think about it, those streets are fairly sterile and expensive. And, and every year at Carnival, of course, the people who own those big stucco houses, what do they do? They board them up, don't of they? Yeah. And they go somewhere they go else. to Tuscany or something. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. No. As you walked around um, the streets, Caroline, where, where else was really striking to you where this yawning gap between what you called the haves and have-nots has just been, has become unsustainable? 
the way I think about streets is that streets tell stories too. I mean, people tell stories, but what happens on the street is, is also a series of stories. And the stories in places like Belgravia are, you know, enormously wealthy, are serviced, are, you, you know, even the facade, you've got these uniform stucco mm. railings, porches with um, pillars and um, if you go around uh, Eaton Square of course there are sort of concierges standing in uniforms in bowler hats um, although what's interesting if you think about Mayfair is the kind of standoff between hereditary wealth like the Groveners and Middle Eastern influence when all sort of joshing are they for, for, they for supremacy are. I mean there's a struggle between oil revenues and hereditary wealth in, in Barclay Square um, um, you know, the Duke of Westminster was the losing bid on buying that. So way. he's losing. Is uh, the, the aristocrats Sorry. are losing out? Are they? They, they are can't a bit, compete yes. with the petrodollars. No, they can't. And if you look at the um, the latest rich list, the people at the top of that, with one or two exceptions, are international. So one of the most concerning things about uh, the reach of billionaire money into London and British society is the possible impact on government and, and influence. And we know that the Conservative Party auction off things like dinners and access at their parties. Stephanie, is the influence of Russian money particularly something that potentially sways policy that has an outsized influence on, on the government's thinking? It's a really good question. I think it it's hard to tell because of the lack of transparency. What we can see is Russian money flowing into political parties, in particular the Tory party. There's a woman named Lubov Chernukin. She was born in Russia, but she is now a British citizen. Lubov Chernukin has donated large sums to the Conservatives to play tennis with David Cameron and Boris Johnson and £135,000 for a night out with Theresa May and members of the cabinet. And she has donated more than £2 million to the Conservative Party. On the other side of Theresa May is Lubov Chinurkin, who's the wife of a former Russian minister. Her wealth comes from her husband, Vladimir, who has strong links to the Kremlin. Uh, she's the top female donor to the Conservative Party, and it's unclear why she's done that and what she's gotten in return. Um, you know, there have been various reports looking at the source of her wealth and, you know, some leaked files showing that her husband had done business with a sanctioned Russian oligarch named Suleiman Karimov. Um, so I think there's real questions about the flow of money into politics, whether or not there are enough checks on what is the origin of that money uh, and what is the agenda really behind it. Uh, you know, there are plenty of other examples of that. Uh, you know, for instance, Yevgeny Lebedev. He is the rich Russian-born son of an ex-KGB agent. And he, of course, um, owns the Evening Standard and has hosted various charity parties and events where Boris Johnson has attended. And he, uh, two years ago, became a member of the House of Lords. And what we've learned recently is that that was against the recommendation of the security services who had raised questions about him and becoming a member of the House of Lords because of his father's KGB past. 
Did Boris Johnson intervene to elevate Evgeny Lebedev to Lord Lebedev of Hampton and Siberia? And money, of course, trumped those security concerns. Exactly. Of course. There's also what we don't see, you know, what they do in the clubs, the, the kind of cognitive capture of government by wealthy foreigners and wealthy people in general, where, you know, the, the, there's nothing is said, but there is a sense of being in a certain location, social location, together, um, which kind of fuels some of these things, I think. What should the government be doing? They've claimed that they're going to clean up uh, the flows of money coming into London, that London is not going to be the world's laundromat that it sometimes is claimed to be. And the government have tried to put legislation through. But is it enough, Stephanie? I mean, are they, are they actually taking this seriously? Or is it very difficult for the British government to disentangle itself from, the, from all of this wealth? I think the Russian money is so deeply embedded in London and the UK, it's going to be very, very difficult to unravel. Using London to launder dirty Russian money has its origins in the politics of the 90s and 2000s, an era of political engagement with Vladimir Putin. You know, it all started as a result of the golden visas. Offered to the world's global elite in exchange for at least £2 million in investment into the country. Those schemes started in the mid-90s and, you know, they've changed over the years, but that, that really ushered in you know, hundreds of wealthy Russians who made their home here felt comfortable because they felt like their property and their wealth was protected here in a way that it wasn't in Russia. And the rules were very lax. I mean, many Russians were allowed to come in with as little as one million, then it was up to two million. All you had to do was prove that the money was in your name for a few months, and then you could invest it in government bonds. It was such a safe bet. It was almost and too good to be true. And very safe compared to other capitals around the world or other major cities. I mean, is it, would it, it was much easier to come here, was it, than, say, go to New York? or? We really rolled out the red carpet for wealthy individuals, uh, you know, and in particular Russians. It's such a, it's a short flight from London to Moscow. You know, Russians were attracted by elite British private schools, by the high quality of private health care. I think, you know, London has a unique ecosystem as well, build on what you say, for dealing with wealth. I think in the United Kingdom, a lack of political will to actually do very much about this. We already have unexplained wealth orders, which we haven't really used. I mean, there is a, gr a growing apparatus that could be used to end the opacities of wealth and the offshoring and hiding of money and uh, laundering of money. But we seem very reluctant to... Because of the economic impact, they're worried about frightening people off or taking the capital and lodging it in Dubai or I mean what I guess I mean the thing about capital it's always very mobile anyway isn't it so if it's going to go it's already gone if it doesn't like what's here so it's a very odd thing uh, but it seems to be that that's the kind of a goal is to attract foreign direct investment and other kinds of uh, international investments at whatever social cost to the city as a whole. I wanted to talk about property because no discussion of wealth in London is complete without talking about 
about property. And it is, it's often described as a, a great way to launder money as well, uh, potentially. In, in June, we had reports about sanctioned Russians buying property at, at one Hyde Park. That was a, that building was, has been such a symbol, hasn't it, of, of the um, sometimes rather crazy prices of London property. I mean, Stephanie, can you tell us more about this and what it tells us about UK transparency laws? Right. So for those who don't know what One Hyde Park is, it's this luxury apartment building across from Harrods that launched about a decade ago, 10, 12 years ago. And, um, you know, the prices range from anywhere from three to I think the top penthouse sold for in excess of 130 million pounds. And I was looking at the ownership of it. Yes, there were reports and I've looked at some of the data behind this that uh, there are about three flats there that are owned by companies or individuals linked to sanctioned Russians. Uh, They did not buy them after the sanctions came through. Those were existing owners. But I think the real story of One Hyde Park is there are about 30 flats that are owned by offshore companies where we have no idea who the ultimate beneficial owner is. And who knows, some of those could be Russian. Uh, you know, and I think that's the real problem facing London. And of course, the economic crime bill that the government rushed through in the wake of the war in Ukraine is attempting to deal with that. Or the UK government says they are stepping up their game. They're putting forward an economic crime bill to members of parliament today. That would put in place a register that would enforce the owners of these assets, largely property across the UK, to have their real identities rather than hiding behind shell companies. And it's going to go back. The legislation was fast-tracked in a bid to target Russian oligarchs over the Ukraine invasion. But is it going to, is it going to work? Tom Keating is the director of the Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI, called that bill a botched job it's not actually going to shine a light is it on who owns these places yeah i mean the economic crime bill is is something that's been languishing for years uh, and it was only the carnage in ukraine that forced the government to finally act and it does a, a few things one it toughens up the sanctions regime it makes it easier to impose penalties for sanctions violations it makes it easier to go after unexplained wealth orders. This is, you know, court efforts to target individuals, make them prove the source of their wealth, that they actually have clean money to buy and hold the assets that they have here. But the the real thing that it does is create this uh, register of overseas uh, companies that own property in the UK. But it's full of loopholes. Uh, you know, you can create a company still based in some place like the British Virgin Islands and find a few relatives or friends to hold less than 25%, which is the threshold uh, at which beneficial ownership must be disclosed. And you still can shield who the ultimate identity, who the ultimate owner is. Um, right. And I'm just, I mean, this comes to the point I really want to, to, to go into next, which is this question of, of secrecy. There is this absolute paranoia of of uh, transparency um I and it's yeah. remarkable and I, you have to give everyone um names sort of stage names in your book because they won't be referred to by their names why do wealth and secrecy 
go together like this. It's curious, isn't it? I mean, they wouldn't have spoken to me if they'd been on the record if I was using their real names. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. They're extremely coy about how much money they've got, how they've got it, often obscuring the origins of their wealth with philanthropy and art collections and other things. I, you know, I coined this term that I borrowed, um, which is that wealth is, in a way, a nervous condition. They, I think the wealthy know that what they do the sources of their wealth that they live in such a different way from the rest of Londoners that actually that's indefensible and I think that's what they're covering up it's not that they do anything so very so there's secret. A, there's a sense of conscience there do you think Sometimes, that actually really I think so there is a whole mix but I think generally they don't want to step over the homeless on the way to the opera they probably <laughs> wouldn't mind uh, investing and paying a little more tax to uh, to even up the playing field a little bit I mean, Stephanie, so we've got this transparency bill. It's, you can circumvent it, as you've described. But how is London stacking up on this with other big financial centres around the world? You know, in America, uh, is it easier to conceal your wealth or are the motives still the same? Or what's the difference in London? It's a real mixed picture. I mean, uh, the U.S. has taken similar steps to try to, um, you know, crack down on money laundering through real estate. But ultimately, there are certain states in the United in the United States that are bigger tax havens than the likes of Cayman or BVI, and so there are real problems there. I mean, the the lack of transparency in states like Montana, Nevada. I mean, the list goes on, is enormous, and you know it's has led to you know, accusations of hypocrisy that the U.S. preaches, you know, what it doesn't practice. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that the U.K. is taking the step in the right direction, but ultimately, for instance, with the overseas register, it doesn't matter if you do, you, you're required to disclose if, there's no, if there are no checks on the information that you provide, and there's no budget for Companies House to actually monitor and audit the information that is submitted there. And I think the real change won't happen until Companies House is empowered and financed properly. I think it is a, a resource issue, isn't it? Very much because the British state in many ways is so much poorer than the wealthy who can afford the best lawyers and so on to avoid tax. So I think, you know, I think it's a question of not just passing legislation, but res as you say, is resourcing it properly and making it enforceable and giving it some teeth. What sort of change can we realistically expect to try to make this a more equal city? Um, you could do something about shifting resources from the very rich into home building um, for people on moderate and poor incomes in London of solving the housing crisis. It should not be beyond a wealthy city or a city with this much money going through it to actually solve the problem of homelessness. It wouldn't be that expensive and actually it would be possible but it you know, you need to empower local authorities to have and spend money. Uh, they don't, often don't have the right resources. And so I think some small redistributions would be in order to make a, a start on that kind of gap which exists. And, you know, can a city where so much of the GDP comes from finance and comes mm. from the Square Mile and Canary Wharf and, and the hedge funds in Mayfair, is there a model in which that can coexist with a more equal society as well? It's difficult, isn't it? And, uh, you know, the whole question of 
counting prosperity through GDP is problematic, isn't it? So I'm not quite sure how one would deal with that. But I mean, certainly making a start on tax, taxation and taxing wealth and raising council taxes so that um, people who, who live in these luxury properties pay, you know, multiples of what the rest of us pay would be, a, would be a start. I think you could begin with that. I'm not saying that you can change the entire system, but if you move a few of the pieces on the board, the mosaic would look a little bit different and it might just move slightly in the right direction. Karen Knowles, thank you so much for talking to In The City. And Stephanie Baker, thank you so much too. Thank you. Thank you. I'm David Merritt, and that's it for this week's episode of In The City. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, if you like the show, please rate it and check out the Bloomberg UK website for more news and views. Special thanks to our guests, Stephanie Baker and Caroline Knowles. This episode was produced by Summer Sardi and Alina Ganatra. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>